Do you remember your grandmother's apron? Grandma's apron, you remember what it looked like? Remember the, the color of it? A few weeks ago, Jan Lee of the Rogersville Review in Rogersville, Tennessee, she, she reposted an article that's been circulating for years about the history of the apron. The history of the apron. And here's how it goes. The principal use of Grandma's apron was to protect the dress underneath, but along with that, it served as a pot holder for removing hot pans from the oven. It was wonderful for drying children's tears. From the chicken coop, the apron was used for carrying eggs. Kindling wood was brought into the kitchen in that apron. From the garden, it carried all sorts of vegetables. In the fall, apples that had fallen from the trees. When unexpected company drove up the road, it was surprising how much furniture that old apron could dust in a matter of seconds. They would go crazy now trying to figure out how many germs were on that apron. That's vivid, isn't it? And then it said this, It will be a long time before someone invents something that will replace that old-time apron that served so many purposes. That's a pretty noble truth about a, a simple piece of clothing, right? That, that one thing, one item could have so many purposes. Well, if you don't remember Grandma's apron, do you remember Grandpa's overalls? Remember those overalls that had tools and just about everything in every pocket you can imagine? Lori Rottenberg says this about overalls. Bribed and bibbed and baggy, constructed of tough denim and studded with enough pockets to create a wearable tool shed, the humble pair of overalls has long been equated with toil, soil, and a plain spoken down to earthiness. That's a pretty good description, right? That's what a, that's what a pair of overalls are. Toil and soil and, and plain spoken. Tammy White is a farmer in Vermont. She says this about her overalls. This is my daily outfit. They are soft with wear and have patches. Overalls, to many, speak of a hard work ethic. Overalls are inspiring. They say, I get the job done. That's a pretty good noble reputation for a, a pair of denim overalls, right? That overalls, they inspire work, and, and overalls, they get the job done. Now, I'm not foolish enough to not believe that somewhere in the world there is an apron that's made out of the finest cashmere. And it's made with 24 karat gold threading. And I know somebody somewhere has taken a pair of overalls and bedazzled them some way, shape, or form. There's diamonds and gems all over that pair of overalls somewhere. But at the end of the day, the most noble truth about aprons and overalls are they are simple, working garments. Aprons and overalls are things that are designed for the purpose of serving. They're designed to help. They're designed to help others. They're designed to be used. They're designed to, to help get the job done. And they have many, many purposes. And one of those purposes is to help you deal with your anxiety. That sounds crazy, right? <laughs> Poor pastor. He's got too much medicine in him this morning. He doesn't know what he's talking about. How in the world can a pair of denim overalls and a cotton apron help me with my stress? How can an apron or, or a pair of overalls help me with my anxiety? Well, what am I talking about? What, what does all this mean? 
But we're going to find out. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Peter is writing a letter to suffering Christians. And he's going to give these suffering Christians some advice. And the advice he gives them is what? He says, clothe yourselves with humility. The word clothe here in the ancient language means a, an apron that a servant would put on before they were about to do their work. And so Peter's advice for suffering Christians is to put on the apron of humility, to put on the overalls of humility. That's the advice that he gives them. Now there's a difference between a bib and an apron, right? There's a, a huge difference between how both of those work. I know a church a year or two ago of a friend of mine, they spent some time evaluating their congregation together and, and trying to, to answer the question, are we bib Christians or are we apron Christians? And we know who wears bibs, right? Little people who can't do anything for themselves, who don't want to get their clothes dirty, and so they have to put this bib on to make sure they don't get dirty. So they have everything done for them, and they have to protect their clothing. That's, that's, a, that's a bib wear. We don't want to be bib Christians. Apron Christians are different. An apron Christian understands that their purpose is to serve. They really believe in their heart of hearts that their main purpose on this earth is to serve the Lord and to serve others. An apron Christian never first and most and often says, you know, what am I going to get out of this? What's, what's in this for me? That's not how apron Christians think. Apron Christians believe that they should minimize self-love and they should maximize love to God and, and love to others. It's a way of life. It's the only way that they know. But what does that look like? What does it look like in, in real life? When we begin to think about this, this concept of, of what it means to be an apron Christian, we, we begin to think through what it means to serve others, what it means that our purpose is to serve others. But what's the most practical way we can see that, particularly in the Bible? Well, that's what's great about Jesus. He always gives us the perfect example. This is what John 13 says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. The cross was always the plan. Jesus did not accidentally end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus always knew he was going back to the Father. Jesus always knew he was going back to heaven. You see, the cross was a, a well-designed, grace-saturated, love-motivated plan that God orchestrated before the foundations of the world. The cross was always hit, and Jesus was always knowing that he was going back. But before he went to the cross, Jesus did something amazing. In fact, he did something that gives us what we should do today with our spouses and our kids, what we should do this afternoon. And what is that? Back at verse 3. Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus had every right to demand that those guys actually wash his feet, but he didn't. He put on the apron of humility. 
See, this afternoon it doesn't mean you should go home and, and literally wash your spouse's feet or, or literally wash your children's feet. But this picture of humility we cannot miss. Jesus put on the apron of humility. He, he served his closest friends. And then he told them this. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say you will be happy and you will be blessed and you will be satisfied if you look out for number one. That's not what he said. He did not say you'll be happy and you'll be blessed and you'll be satisfied if you fight to get your way all the time. That's not what he said. He says in unbelievably simple language, you will be happy and you will be blessed and you will be satisfied if you will learn to serve. If you will learn to, to serve others. You'll be happy and you'll be blessed and you'll be satisfied if self-love in your life diminishes and if love to God and love to others increases. The math is not hard to figure out. So a diminishing of self-love, a diminishing of self-centeredness. Well, that's easy, right? I mean, we hear that all the time, right? I mean, that's the primary message that we get when we watch the news or when we watch our TV shows or our movies, right? Don't be self-centered. I mean, that's usually the message we get, right? I mean, when we read the papers and, and we're surfing the internet reading articles and, and we're reading fiction and nonfiction books, they usually tell us not to be self-centered, right? I mean, the message of our hobbies and, and of sports and of many forms of education is always telling us, don't look out for yourself, right? Rarely, rarely does this message come into our lives. Rarely do we hear this message from Jesus in our normal routine. In fact, according to most of the philosophies of the world, if we clothe ourselves with humility, we will not make it in the real world. We, we won't survive in the real world. One commentator said this about what it means to clothe yourself with humility. Look on the good in others and the evil in yourself. Most people do just the opposite. Look on the good of others and the evil of yourself. Yeah, that's what I'm going to put on my college application, right? That's what I'm going to put as my objective on my resume. Hey, before you hire me, I want you to know that I'm always looking out for the good of others and the evil in myself. That would spark the boss to say, hey, I want the evil guy. Let's hire him. But most people don't think that way, do they? And if we're honest, most of us don't don't think that way, even as professing Christians. This, this notion of constantly looking for the good in others and not really always saying, you know what, I'm better than that guy. Well, I'm better than that gal. Well, I didn't make Channel 10 News tonight, so I guess I'm all right. But that's not the picture that Jesus gives us. He gives us a, a picture of clothing ourselves with humility. And why should we do that? What should be our motivation? I mean, why should we waste our time with this whole idea of humility. Well, here's why. Look at the next part of verse 5. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is continually opposing the proud. Why? What's God's problem with proud people? What's, what's his big deal? 
Well, proud people always think that they're more important than anybody else. Proud people always think that they can trust in themselves, and they do trust in themselves, than they trust in anybody or anything else. And that's the opposite of the gospel. You see, the gospel calls us to a sense of, of helplessness and dependence ultimately on God. And that's why so many people push back from the gospel. That's why so many people reject the gospel. They can't imagine believing in something that demands dependence. They can't imagine believing in something that, that demands a sense of, of helplessness. One day Jesus was teaching and he said this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When you go up to a little child, a little child has a trusting heart. If you were to tell a small child, hey buddy, just made you a banana split, that little child is not going to look at you and say, hey, thanks. Listen, did you use organic bananas? Because I kind of have a thing for that right now. If you go up to a small child and say, hey, sweetie, we just bought you a pony. That little girl is not going to look back at you and say, thanks. How do I really know if this is a good breed, though? See, when a little child hears good news, they don't fight, they don't grumble, they don't complain, they don't whine, and they don't ask for every detail. A child hears good news, and they love it, and they grab it, and they receive it with humility. That is what Jesus calls us to do with God's truth and with our faith. I came across an interesting comment this week on an article I was reading on Facebook. Josh Arrowwood said this, God does stiff arm the proud and gives grace to the humble. I like that language. God, God stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is grace? Well, grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor. And see, that's why so many people reject the gospel. Because they want what they deserve. And they want what they deserve so bad that they will not humble themselves and be helpless and dependent like a child toward God. But see, here's, here's the problem. No one deserves grace. No one you, you can't earn grace. There's, there's nothing you can do that would cause God to say, mm, that Dow man, he did a good deed today. I think I will give him the grace of salvation. No. Grace is undeserved. This is how Paul told the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. See, the, the beauty of salvation is there's never a time when I tell my testimony that I say, this is what I did. My testimony is always, look what God did. Amazing grace does not have my name after it. Amazing grace has the name of Jesus Christ after it. God gives grace to the humble. Why? Because the humble get that. The humble get that they were dead in their trespasses. They were dead in their sins. They had no hope. They were separated from God. There was no good deed that was ever going to do anything for them. And the only destiny they had, the only fate 
that they had in life was eternal terror and horror and hell. That's it. That's, that's the only answer they knew for their life. God gives grace to people who, who get that. And God gives grace to the humble because the humble know the only reason their story changed, the only way they made it from life to death, from darkness to light, is because of the undeserved favor of God. So God stiff arms the proud. He, he is continually opposing the proud, but he does not stiff arm the humble. He is continually, over and over and over again, giving grace. Every second of every day, he's giving grace continually. But that is not what the world will tell you you need to focus on. The world does not say, hey, if you want to get ahead in life, you need to be humble. That's not the message of the world. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we trying to get ahead to? What do we consider the top? How are we defining success? And Peter says to these suffering Christians, I would give you this definition for how you need to succeed. I would give you this counsel for how you need to get ahead. Clothe yourselves with the apron of humility. Put on the overalls of humility. And then he gives us a really good reason why we should do that. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand. Of God. What does it mean to, to put yourself down under God? What does it mean to, to humble yourself under God? Well, it means making God the center of your universe. The center of your universe. Well, why should you do that? Why should you make God the center of your universe? Well, because his hands are mighty, like really, really, really mighty. A.W. Pink says this. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none. Influenced by none. Absolutely independent. God does as he pleases. Only as he pleases. Always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. If you're a believer, that is incredibly good news. Because if that God is for you, really, who can be against you. Your spouse? Your rebellious children? The mean boss? The government? The dictator? The, the army? The, the wicked people overseas that, that have their hands on a button that might launch a nuclear weapon? Those people can really get to you if this God is for you? No. Not at all. This picture of God is, is incredible for us as believers because it shows us that no one can stand against us. And even if they did, even if someone stood against us, even if someone took our life, there is no one who can ever keep us from the glories of heaven. Nobody. Nothing. Nothing can keep us ultimately from Jesus. Peter writes to the church, he goes, guys, y'all need to put yourselves in this apron and then you need to put yourselves under the mighty hand of God because there's nobody like him. Nobody. 1 Chronicles 16, 31. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. 
The Lord reigns supreme. The president does not reign supreme. The chief justice does not reign supreme. Kings and queens do not reign supreme. The winner of American Idol will not reign supreme. The Super Bowl champions will not reign supreme. There is no pastor, there is no parent, there is no grandparent, there is no general, no admiral, no rock star, no movie star, no chief executive officer that will ever reign supreme. Only the Lord of hosts, only the God of Israel reigns supreme. And Peter says, put your life in his hands. Clothe yourselves with humility and put your life in his hands. This is kind of a long quote, but hang with me. Charles Spurgeon says this. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But... When God ascends His throne, His creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God and His right to do as He wills with His own to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. I don't even know what that word means, but it sounds bad, right? I should have looked that up. I thought about it. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. It's very true. And then he says this. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne whom we trust. And it is the God that we've sung of today. The God whose holiness is even beyond our reach. That's the God we trust. That's the God that we should make the center of our universe. And why should we do that? Why should we make God the center of the universe? What, what will happen if we do? Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Peter's writing to Christians who were suffering. Suffering Christians. They were used to this. They were used to living in a world where the Roman government was constantly oppressing them. Constantly discouraging them and making their life difficult. And so his help, his advice for them, for all of that suffering, for all of that discouragement, was to put on the clothes of humility. Now how in the world would the apron of humility encourage people who were suffering like that? Well, he says they will be exalted. What does it mean to be exalted? It means to be lifted up. Peter says, put on the apron of humility and put yourself under the mighty hands of God because God will lift you up. He'll lift you up out of the stress. He'll lift you up out of the worry. He'll lift you up out of the trials and the tribulations and the depressions and the difficulty and the anxieties of life. And when will he do this? He will do it at the proper time. And when's the proper time? I have no clue. <laughs> I have no idea. 
When it comes to the anxieties of your life, God might lift you up in just a few minutes or in a few hours or in a few days or in a few weeks. Or the, the proper time may be years later. Or the proper time may be when you die. But the proper time may not sound like our proper time, but it will be the proper time according to the sovereign clock of God. So somebody might be thinking, so let me get this right. God's going to lift me up, but he might not do it until I die. Woo, glad I came to church today. Man, this is some great news. Give me more, give me more. Sounds like bad news, I'll admit. At first light, wait a minute, you mean, so, so my anxiety is never going to go away? My stress is never going to go away? My problems are never going to go away? Maybe until I die? That didn't sound like good news. Well, Peter gives us something else to think on. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Have you ever felt like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? Ever felt like everything's just falling apart? Are you there right now? Is that how life feels right now? The, 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 whole, the whole world's just on your shoulders. Nothing is going right. Well, Peter's talking to people who are, who are living in that world. And he tells them to, to put on this apron of humility because he knew there was a lot that would happen. That, that one thing had so many purposes. And God, God would use that apron of humility in, in so many ways. And his life here, because he had been living this way, and the life that he wants these people to have is this. He tells them, look, throw all that stuff on Jesus. Just, just throw everything on Jesus. Throw all your worry, throw all your fear, throw all your stress, throw all your bitterness, throw all those anxieties, just, just throw those things on Jesus. Throw it all at Jesus. Someone once said this, Jesus is willing to be fully responsible for the things we are anxious about. I love that. Fully responsible for the things that we're anxious about. So, so how, does this, how does this work? How do, how do we throw things at Jesus? How do, we, how do we throw things at this one who is willing to be responsible for all of our anxiety and our stress and our fear? Well, I am not trying to oversimplify this, but I am an overly simple person. I can only think in so many realms. And so, so here's my description of what it means to throw things at Jesus. If my bride were watching a TV show, and suddenly a snake appeared on the screen, she would do one of two things. She would either cover her eyes very quickly and scream, or she would scream and change the channel. One of the two things. Some of you are similar in that night. Maybe not snakes, maybe yours is cockroaches, or, I don't know, Richard Simmons' video. I don't know, something scares you, you know, and you look up and you, you know, look the other way. But what is she doing in that moment? What she's doing is she's throwing her mind somewhere different. Why? Because the snake is messing with her. The snake is giving her the willies. And so she throws her mind somewhere else, either to her hands or to another channel. In a sense, throwing things at Jesus, casting our anxieties on Jesus, is like changing the channel of our minds. Now that doesn't mean if we change the channel that everything's going to be great and life's just going to get all fluffy and 
and toasty and wonderful and great. No, that's, that's not what it means. But it does mean this. It means the willies don't paralyze us. See, that's what anxiety does. It, it puts this thing in our life and we get paralyzed. We can't move. We can't function. We can't think. We're short with our spouse and we're short with our kids and we're short at work. We can't talk on the phone. We can't think about texting or, or calling. We get paralyzed with this one thing or, or this myriad of things. And Peter's advice for these Christians who were suffering to the point of death for their faith, which most of us have not this week, his advice for them was this, put on the apron of humility. Because that one apron, man, it does a lot of stuff. It puts you under the mighty hands of God. And it allows you to remember that you can throw all of this stuff at Jesus. In a, in a moment, you can change your mind just by thinking again about the cross. This is what Jesus says to every one of us. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus doesn't say, go to the pastor, or go to Oprah, or go to Dr. Phil, or go to your hobby, or go to sports, or, or go to the bar, or, or go to the buffet, you know? See, somewhere in our minds, we have this whole list of things that we can do to make us feel better. But Jesus says, if you need rest, come to me. To me. Look what he says. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Everyone who is full of anxiety and fear and burden. Come to me and I will give you a ticket to go get a hamburger. I'll give you a bottle of pills. No. Jesus says, I will give you what you want the most. And that's rest. I will help your heart rest in in me. In me. Peter says, my advice for you is to cast your anxieties on Jesus Christ. And why should we do that? Well, look at the last part of verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Look, I care about my wife. I care about my kids. I care about you. But you know what? This is going to be hard for you to believe. I don't do everything right, you know? Sometimes I can be rude. Sometimes I can be mean and bitter. Sometimes I can be a good for nothing. And you know what? So can you. None of us are perfect. That never happens with God. It never happens. There's never a moment that God fails in His care toward other people. See, God doesn't need 10 seconds to cool down. He doesn't need to count to 10 to, to not be angry anymore. God doesn't need to consider everyone's feelings and everyone's thoughts. God doesn't have to consider what are the best options. He always knows what's best. And He always does what's best. And there's never a time that He doesn't continually give grace to those who humble themselves under his mighty hands. In other words, you may care and I may care some of the time. In fact, some of us may care most of the time, but we cannot care all of the time. But God can, and God does, and that cannot be interrupted. And that's why Peter says, cast your anxieties, throw your anxieties here, because you throw them anywhere else, they're coming back. 
When you escape in the two-hour movie, when the movie's over, all that stuff's still there. When you escape to food or drinking or drugs or anything else that you want to fill in that blank, TV or shopping or whatever it may be, when the escape is over, when you've gone to your fifth plate at the buffet, I'm not describing me in any way, shape, or form there, but when that time is over, it's, it's still there. But when we throw things at Jesus, he takes them. Again, it doesn't mean life gets perfect, but we begin to see, wait a minute, I have a Savior. I have a Savior. I don't just have somebody that I go shake hands with and talk about on Jesus. I have a Savior for 3.30 on Monday. I have a Savior for 3.30 on Thursday. I have a Savior for 7 o'clock on Wednesday morning. I have a Savior. That's all Peter's trying to get them to do to to see that they have a Savior. A story is told of a little boy who used to go with his mom to the country store. And when he'd go to the country store, the store owner would always tell him to, to come over into the barrel of candy and, and he could scoop down and, and get him a handful of candy and, and put it in a bag to take home with him. But the little boy never did it. He never would. He, he would just always stand there real quietly and patiently until the store owner got a hand of candy and put it in a bag for him. One day they were leaving, the mom said to the little boy, she said, son, how come you never put your hand in the barrel when he asked you to do it? And the little boy said, well, mama, his hands are bigger. <laughs> I kid not know how to get some candy. Do you want to yank the rug on anxiety? Do you want to yank the rug on pride? then humble yourself under the mighty, big hands of God and cast your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He, he really, really cares for you. The message of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross in every stress, in every trial, in every terror, in every moment of anxiety, the cross says again to your soul, God cares for you. Let's pray.